0: As we approach the church, I always want to look at it from that social perspective, because I think that people don't quite realize that they just went through a social genocide. I mean, you you went through something that is so painful to your body. No human was meant to be a part of a culture and then be like, screw it and walk completely away from that culture. Walk completely away from that culture, That is one of the hardest things a human can do. They've studied stress. And other than like death, divorce, abuse, migration being like uprooted from one culture and popped in another is one of the most stressful things you could possibly do. And that's basically what we did to ourselves is we took ourselves from a culture that we were comfortable in, that we understood the rules, even the tacit rules. We knew where our place was. We knew what our future was. And we purposefully Purposefully. Purposefully. plopped ourselves into this new land where we know nothing and nothing makes sense anymore. And that's an enormously uh, painful and, and harmful to your health thing that we just went through. And, I don't quite think people realize the magnitude of that and how rare it is in human culture. How rare it is in human culture. How
1: rare it is in human culture.
0: All because of logic, right? We did that to ourselves because we're like, wait, A plus, you know, two plus two does not equal five. So you guys must be wrong. Well, the reality is in any other time period or culture, it wouldn't matter. If two plus two isn't five, you need to survive. This is your group. (laughs) This is your culture. Figure out how to survive within it. And it doesn't really matter. I mean, how many different logical regimes did people live in over the course of their lifetimes? I mean, no sense.
2: Right. You just conform to what you need to conform to to survive. Exactly. Sure.
0: And the fact that we willingly left is just to me, wow, it's, it's pretty... Fascinating, and I think we need to talk about the social, the real social consequences of that, even the physical consequences of that. The real physical
1: consequences. The real physical consequences. All the electrons that are in your body are not fundamental. All the electrons that exist in your body are waves of the same underlying field. We're all connected to each other. It's like, you know, the waves uh, on the ocean all belong to the the same underlying ocean. Uh, The electrons in your body are the ripples of the same field as the electrons in my body.
0: I don't quite think people realize the magnitude of that. All
1: the electrons that are in your body. Wow, it's it's,
0: it's pretty... Fascinating, and I think we need to talk about the social, the real social consequences of that, even the physical consequences of that.
1: We're all connected to each other.
0: All connected
1: to all each connected other.
0: Together. Screw it and walk completely away from that culture. That
2: culture. <laughs> this is Infants on Thrones. The philosophies of men mingled with humans. We are the core. Welcome back to Infants on Thrones. I'm Glenn Ostland, and today I sit down with Chelsea Shields, who you may have heard most recently on episode 523, where we talked about cultural relativism. Now, Chelsea has a dual PhD in both cultural anthropology and biological anthropology. So she spent a lot of time thinking about the intersect between cultural belief systems and evolutionary biology of the human body. And there were a lot of things that I wanted to talk to Chelsea about in that previous episode that we didn't quite get to. Of course, there were also things at the end of today's episode that I still wanted to talk to her about that we just didn't have time for, as you'll eventually hear. But I found this conversation fascinating. Fascinating. Okay, fine. Fascinating.
1: Fascinating.
2: (laughs) I I hope you do, too. And hey, dear listeners... If any of you would like to listen in live or even contribute to a discussion like the one that you're about to hear today, mark your calendars because on Sunday, December 2nd, Chelsea and I will be reviewing a book that she mentioned during the course of today's discussion. It's called Social, Why Our Brains Are Wired to Connect by Matthew D. Lieberman. Hmm, Matthew D. Lieberman. Remember the D, he must be a Mormon general. Author- no, he's actually he's not a Mormon general authority. Anyway, we will review that book and open up that discussion to any of our Patreon supporters who would like to join us. So, you'll find more details on Patreon as we get closer to that date, December 2nd. And now, let's jump right in because because we started getting into some really interesting stuff even before I pushed record. And with all this talking I've been doing right here, we may have already missed something important. All right. Why don't, why don't you say that again?
0: (laughs) Okay, (laughs) So I love being able to talk about all this science and, and community and kind of my experience in the Mormon culture and church. And I love it seeing it as an anthropologist, but I have almost no interest in debating the doctrine or talking through um, religious texts or talks. I mean, that I did that for a decade. I was deep doctrine diver, you know? Mm. I had found all these, like, really um, unknown sources. And I was like, you know, I wrote this whole paper on the three levels of the celestial kingdom. You know, like, I was such a theory junkie. You, you wanted, wanted the
2: deeper doctrines. I
0: wanted the deeper doctrine. Sure, and yeah. I was obsessed with it. So I get that. Since I've left, I just really have no interest. I have no interest in talking about it. I have no interest. in, And it's fascinating to me that all of you still find that that passion. Do you?
2: Well, you say all of you and all find you. that passion. So, <laughs> so, so yeah. But before we started re- recording, Chelsea said, I don't know how you guys keep talking about <laughs> so the plan of salvation. It's just so uninteresting to me. And, uh, you know, I, I guess... I I think that my interest in it is probably pretty similar to your interest and your disinterest that is probably more similar than dissimilar. But that's what I'm interested in in exploring, I guess, is where do you draw the line? Uh, Okay. well, first, let's establish this. You are interested in Mormons as a social group, as a cultural group. You're interested in that. Right.
0: And I'm interested in how our doctrine becomes praxis. And and mm-hmm. how we interact with each other, how social practices get encultured, yeah. how we shame, how we guilt. I think all that stuff's fascinating. But to get down to the nitty-gritty of like the plan of salvation, to me it's like wah wah yeah. wah wah. It's just fake.
2: Yeah, but it's like that's that's the artifact. That's the that, that's that's the the product of the culture. And so it's gonna have the fingerprints of the culture all over it. You know, when you're trying to understand the difference between the doctrine and the praxis, um, yeah. and and maybe we can spend some time unpacking that a little bit more. But I, to 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 me, I I, I agree that like my, my interest in it isn't so much like you you know back in the day. My my I had several little. Personal <laughs> uh, versions of the plan of salvation that I had just created in my own head because i 'm like okay this doesn 't make over sense over here let me let me figure something that 'll make it make sense and you know like my favorite one was when I was watching the temple movie and you know God punishes Satan for giving Eve the fruit of the tree. And he says, well, if you punish me for what's been done in other worlds, you know, what are you doing here, Satan? Only what's been done in other worlds. What's that? that." You know, and like the whole thing, like I created a whole backstory about how that actually means. Yeah. What that line (laughs) means that in other worlds, that in other worlds, The Adam and Eve people were introduced into the garden, said, here, don't do these things for a temporary period of time. But then at some point when they're ready... Jehovah comes down and gives them the fruit and ushers them into mortality. And Satan, as the person who, the reason he became the devil in the first place from Lucifer was because he wanted to usurp Jesus' power. Mm. And so he was going to take on that role and usurp that from Jesus and because that's what makes him the God of this world. You know, so like I I had my own like fan fiction.
0: <laughs>
2: uh, and so, so, so maybe like the the level of creating Mormon fan fiction isn't that interesting to me now, and like reading other Mormons' fan fiction isn't as interesting to me now. But the the way those beliefs um, exist and and I think turn into practice. That's what you mean when you say praxis, right? Yeah. It goes from doctrine to practice. Praxis: yeah. how you apply it in your everyday life. So the only way I can do that now is if I find somebody like this anti-Mormon crusader, Jeremy Goff, right. who, you, you know, like is is spewing his ignorance oh and I gosh. can respond to it. And I do that because it's fun. Right. Um, I, I think that there's people in the audience that enjoy listening to that. And maybe there's people that are just like done with it. Like, why would I want to listen to some idiot Jeremy Goff talk about stuff? I don't care anymore. Fine. You know, but, but that, that's where I find those intersections between belief and practice and Identity and you know social policing, and I don't know all the technical terms for it, but that that that's where I find interest in it.
0: Absolutely, I think that, and one thing I actually really appreciate from an anthropological perspective is when ex Mormons or former Mormons who were really in are talking about things, because you can tell you can tell instantly when it's um, an anthropologist that's never been Mormon. Mm -hmm. So I've had some people analyze, let's say the text, uh, Book of Mormon, Doctrine and Covenants, whatever. And when they talk about this scripture as storytelling, as myth, as folklore, kind of what you did in your degree, um, it's off, they're off. And it's because Mormons are very interesting creatures. The way that we actually study scripture is like almost book divination. It's, It's, yeah, we talk about these stories, but like the first story in the Book of Mormon is Nephi cutting off, laban's head right because to save mankind or whatever and a non-mormon would look at that and be like wow these are even john krakauer's novel right these are very violent people Mm -hmm. who agree in the church over everything And, and that's not who we are at all that was just like a little story we used to tell right so what i'm trying to say with that is i do think that we have this infusion of the magic the sympathetic magic the contagious magic we take these scriptures and we turn them into what we want to be in our actual everyday practice. We, you know, different prophets have mentioned different things that then we focus on for that time period. Think about in Joseph Smith's time, the scriptures really were kind of this law of consecration. It was a law book. We don't read any of those chapters nowadays. No one talks about it. It's not the way we live. And it's a social, you know, political, economic Manual and if you weren't mormon and you read that you would think that's a huge part of our culture, right? Because it's in the text and it's not and I think that's the part That I think the insider knowledge the emic point of view or the in internal point of view of a culture That's what I find the most fascinating is yeah. all those tacit pieces of knowledge in glenn's head or in matt's head or in my head that you only have acquired by living out this culture and it doesn't always map perfectly to some artifact that someone's going to find in 50 years and be like this is what the mormons were like it would actually be off if we recreated mormon culture based just on scriptural text or just on doctrine that's not what we do that's not how mormons actually live yeah and i think that's the part that i find fascinating
2: were were you the kind of kid that when you do Scripture Mastery, you wanted to be the first one to find it, the first one to turn to it, the first one to, like, have it all memorized? And
0: Oh, of course. Color-coordinated yeah. scriptures. Oh, sure,
2: sure. Yeah, all the stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that that's, that's an element, I think, what you're talking about. Um, different ways that scriptures function in our lives. In that case, creating some social currency. You can go, look at me. I'm good. I know. I memorized all that stuff. I know where it is. I'm. I take it seriously. Look at me. That you, you, unless you have that experience of doing it, you might not understand that that's something that's going on in the way that Mormons interact with their scriptures. Is is that an example that illustrates what you're talking about?
0: Exactly. Okay. Or the idea that Mormons are always taught progress, progress, read, study, learn all the best books. Right? You would think that Mormons are very into gaining knowledge, and right. yet I find one of the most <laughs> think, uh, I find one of the most fascinating parts of my testimony devolution was um, the concept of be careful what you learn. Don't learn too much. Be careful yeah. what you read. you know. Don't 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 be too learned. Yeah. And we use that word learned, and it's a very cultural thing. You don't hear that outside Mormon church as much. And it really stuck with me, this idea of doctrinally, we would say, be as, where's the next Mozart? Where's the next, you know, Beethoven? Be as, be as great at what you are and who you are as you could possibly be. That's the doctrine. The reality is people who know too much leave quicker so there's this yeah. entire practice in the church of let's get kids on missions earlier let's get them married quicker let's you know we don't actually want to read and know the doctrine backwards and forwards we want to have little nice lessons that make us feel good on sunday because if you dive too deep you start to see these contradictions and now we were affecting you know uh what is the, uh, the these mental gymnastics like this cognitive dissonance that now people have to deal with and it puts them on these paths my friends who studied the least are the ones who are the most active nowadays. And I think that's fascinating.
2: Yeah. 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 There there does seem to be a disincentive uh, to learning or like a ceiling, like a limit to what you're able to think of yourself as uh, even, even sources of information that are reliable or credible or not. And you're not encouraged to, to go in certain places. Yeah.
0: My dad used to always talk about this research and I don't even know where it is if I could even find it, but it's about people who get PhDs uh, leave religion, their religi- religiosity of people with higher degrees. Mm-hmm. And in every field or school or whatever, the higher education you get, the less degrees you have except for at BYU, except for Mormon men, particularly. It wasn't Mormon women. I don't know if they didn't have enough or if we all left, but yeah. um, Mormon men were the only group that had statistically significant of getting higher degrees and staying religious. And I think that that's really fascinating. And I know that I talk about, you know,
2: I buck that that trend.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, and I, I, I feel bad. I have to caveat because I do feel like every time we talk, I'm kind of like, man, I hate men. And that's, that's not what I mean. But Mm -hmm. I do think that there's an element of, of privilege there, that if you are a man, you can, can, control your stewardship. You can make choices. You can kind of have a little bit more I don't freedom in knowledge if that makes any sense and maybe you can you can tell me I'm wrong if you agree. I have um, no idea. You know, I think because he can be a bishop, he could be a state president, he can mm-hmm. make his own choices. He can say, "Nope, my in my word we're going to focus on service and we're going to always love one another and we're not really going to push that hard back on tattoos and double piercings. And, you know, as a bishop, you can kind of weigh out the things that you want your community to focus on and the things that you don't. So if you have some issue with the temple, let's say you just don't emphasize that as much. And, and, and you kind of have control. If you're a woman, it happens to you. So my bishop or state president or whatever loved the temple and I hated it I could go every single week and it could be a lesson about the temple. And I have no control over that knowledge diffusion that's coming down on top of me.
2: Yeah. I, yeah. And I think there's definitely a, uh, you know, the, the male, female dynamic, you know, differences in that dynamic in the church. But j- just because you've got a man who's a bishop and a woman's never able to be a bishop doesn't mean that every man is happy with what that bishop's pet topic is that they want to pursue either or that they have any power at all to change it of course because of the penis but no uh, no
0: i I agree and i think that it's kind of like i almost think of it like alpha male versus beta male so like in a community you know the bishop or the state president is the alpha and he gets mm -hmm. to decide what he's doing until you become alpha right and as a beta male you have to do what he says or leave the group basically And I think that that has got to play tricks with a lot of men's psyche as well.
2: It probably does. Yeah. 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 The, the alpha and the beta that used to be a grocery store where I grew up.
0: Oh, really? <laughs> alpha
2: beta, yeah, not around anymore. Uh, cool. So, so you listened back to the recording that we did a few weeks ago about moral relativism. Uh, I, I, I wasn't completely satisfied with that conversation. It went in a lot of different (laughs) directions. And I did like, as I was preparing for the discussion, I felt like, oh, I think I understand moral relativism better now than I ever have before. But by the end of the conversation, I was just as muddy and murky about it as I had ever been. So I don't know if you have any light to shed on the problems of moral relativism or where it. You know, like, is there a line where you go, okay, this kind of moral relativism is okay. This is where it's, it's not, I, I I don't get, or or even just defining it. Like, how do you define relativism um, and the the, the difference? What I I think I mentioned three different types of relativism. There was the cultural relativism, moral relativism and epistemological relativism. But I I think that just made it, you know, the, 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 the question is how, I think you even said earlier when you were talking about um, how difficult it is for an outsider to look at the Mormon church and say, okay, generally Mormons are this way because everybody has a different version of what Mormonism is in their heads. Everybody's living something slightly different. So, so then everyone's, Sense of truth or reality is relative, based upon their perceptions, and it's relative based upon the way that they see the worlds, their experiences, things like that. But right. so when you get into certain cases, like somebody commented on our website, they wanted to hear us talk about, well, what, what do you do when you're talking about government issues or policy? You know, like who gets to make the decision if everybody if everybody's opinions is equally valid, which I think is probably a false dichotomy that comes out of this. But how, how do you approach things? So. That was a really muddled softball I'm trying to throw to you to to see what you want to do with moral relativism or relativism at all.
0: Well, it was interesting. As I was listening, I remembered why I left philosophy and became an anthropologist. So I was obsessed with philosophy in undergrad. I would take all the honors philosophy. I'd attend all the seminars. I'd go to all the classes. I loved being able to discuss this stuff at such a depth um, that we could get down to that nitty gritty, like what if, what if, what if but it always bothered me because it wasn't rooted in real experience mm-hmm. real experience in a cephalous society. So A E C E P H E L O U S is a weird word as It mm-hmm. means that there is no, um, no one's telling you everyone's equal. There is no like patriarchal matriarchal mm-hmm. kind of order. Right. There. And the reality is there is no such thing yeah. <laughs> in right. any group situation. Someone will step up as a dominant. And, yeah. and someone will be less dominant. And in each situation, dependent on context, it's going to change which person becomes dominant. In a hospital, you're going to listen to the doctor, right? In mm-hmm. a legal office, you're going to listen to the lawyer. And so our context does shift who gets that dominant position, who gets to be kind of the social um, alpha and then who gets to be the passive one and it changes all our whole life we're jumping and code switching from each quote co- so when i'm at home i'm in one role when i'm at work i'm in another role when i'm at church i'm in another role and we're constantly code shifting through all these different cultures that we're putting ourselves in and so where i struggle with these kind of epistemological or moral relativism, relativism debates is you can't have decisions outside of a context and context determines everything So, you know, we can't sit in philosophy class and debate relativism without a real life example, real life examples that actually help us because then it's affecting our empathy centers and it's affecting our, our cultural context of what's okay and what's not okay. And so it's the context that really shapes what makes someone say something's good and make someone say something's bad. And so in philosophy, I always was just frustrated. I'm like, the context matters, the culture Mm -hmm. matters. That could be true here. That's probably not true in the middle of West Africa, right? And so I love being able to root all of this stuff in real examples. So I don't have any answers for you, but I will tell you how I teach my cultural anthropology 101 students about relativism. And we have a whole week on it. And we really talk through things and I try to bring it home to them. Um, historical relativism, there's uh, body shape relativism, and I'll explain this in just a sec. There's, you know, we used to think tense, you know, light skin and being very heavy was beautiful where we would, you know, old English women would draw blue lines on their necks in order to show the blue of their veins that their skin was so translucent. And now we love tan skin, Right. And and I want them to see that every single thing in life has been different in some other context, in some other history, in some other place than it is right now. And you think this is hard and fast. And so one thing that I do is I line them up on like day one and I say, line yourself up by height. Great. Line yourself up by uh, skin color. That's a little more hard, you know, and then I kind of throw in some weird ones, line yourself up by how hairy you are right and they kind of line themselves up and we kind of see all the diversity and then it starts to get tricky i say line yourself up by sexuality and they have a this huge debate on identity versus actual sexuality versus whatever and they have to debate how do we put ourselves into this thing and then i say line yourself up by weight and they have another huge debate they're like we don't want to make anyone in the class feel bad we don't want to And the one that no one has ever done, no class has ever done it. They all end up... Because I tell them they can sit down if they don't want to participate. And so you start to lose people at sexuality, weight. And the one that no one will do is attractiveness. Line yourself up by attractiveness. And for some reason, that's like a bar or a boundary that college kids don't want to take. And so then we sit around and we talk about why in our culture is attractiveness the worst thing you could be in our culture is not attractive. And we talk through that and we, we analyze it from all these different perspectives. We talk through the skin color, we talk through the weight, and we talk about different contexts in history where that wasn't the case or different contexts where it wouldn't matter. And then after we kind of get through the biology culture where we say, you know, even skin color, even hairiness, even weight, is just biology. The fact that any, or even attractiveness, it's just biology. It's just a matter of ratios. The fact that people are uncomfortable means there's a cultural element in there. So we kind of break apart the biology and the culture. So then the next class we break apart, um, moral relativism. And we start to write things like genocide, murder, circumcision, and I force them to kind of talk through that. And the one that everyone has a really hard time with is this continuum of circumcision and how, you know, there's lots of different circumcisions. There's circumcisions that are horrendous, that, you know, cut off off the clitoris, we're going to sew you completely up. And there's circumcisions that are just kind of minimal. And we put male circumcision in kind of a little bit in the middle and we have this huge debate of why is it okay to do in our culture and why is theirs not okay and how do we deal with this idea of, of circumcision morally and ethically in, in all cases so if it's not okay in this case then is it okay if it's happening over here to these people and we kind of have to talk through that and then we talk through when would murder be okay and we, then we start to bring in some of those moral relativism arguments or scenarios and talk through those, but trying to root them in actual context and showing that, you know, each, I don't know, I'm probably blabbering, you might have to edit this out, but that dependent on context, this thing that you thought would never be okay, might be okay dependent Mm. on context and vice versa. And then we talk about human universals and that's where we get into, you know, there's no rule that no human has ever broken. It's that taboo. You know, that's why they're taboo. People break them and if you don't like it and that's why they're shamed and there's why they're taboos. But we talk through kind of some human universals that people across time and throughout history rarely break, you know, the incest taboo, the um, you know, even murder taboo the whatever and we kind of talk through those and we kind of realize that there is some moral fiber um in our in our whatever dna or throughout time in history there are certain rules we don't like to break humans don't like to break but there's no rules that humans never break if that makes sense and we kind of talk through how content how context alters all of those different things
2: so so do you think that there because there are certain things that uh humans throughout time they they don't that they they call these things taboos they don't want to violate w- would you argue then for like a universal morality or would you say that morality is relative to your culture or or your your perspective or like what where are cuz that's that always seems to be the the, the crux of the arguments when people are talking about moral relativism is there definitely are absolute things that we can count on it can't just be this wishy-washy thing well it's up to whoever or whatever and that's what makes people uncomfortable i think in in these kinds of discussions so so how how have those discussions gone with your students when you've introduced these topics to them because I, I mean i remember doing that with undergraduate students too yeah. and they'll just argue about stuff for a long time you're like okay cool yeah. you guys argue i don't handle- have to grade that
0: some of them can't handle it some i think it tells us more about someone's personality than it does about actual moral relativism to be honest sure. there there's people that cannot handle the fact that there isn't black and white good bad rules and i think that as you mature as you kind of learn about the world and as you start to see oh crap Even I had this experience, you know, America's done some shitty things to some other countries, (laughs) you know, and I'm starting to realize, oh, that wasn't really moral, but it was good for my people and my culture. And sometimes people make bad choices because it's better for them. Like sometimes people cross moral lines because it gives them an advantage. That's still a good thing. It's survival instinct to have more, to do something that makes you survive longer, but it's immoral. Right or to take over someone's land or to kill them or whatever, but we do it every single day. Cultures are doing it every single day is taking advantage, or explo- exploiting, um, yeah. getting, gaining something by taking something from someone else. And we all know that's not good. We all know you shouldn't, but we all do it. And I think that a lot of people don't like that in themselves. They don't like that in others. They want to believe that at the core of humanity is compassion and love, not this. How can I get the most out of this situation? Not this kind of calculating homo economicus is what we call it, right? This, this rational calculating person who's trying to get the most out of everyone around them and give the least. And I think that that's the person we hate in life. And yet we're all that person. And I think we, it's like self-hatred when we're like, but I want rules. I want black and white. I want to know everyone's good. It, it, you're not. No, yeah. not everyone's good. In fact, most of us are always trying to get the best we can out of life. And it's a constant competition between us and others. And people hate that perspective because it's kind of depressing.
2: Yeah, but it's also real. Yeah. <laughs> when, when, when we first came on, there was something that you were talking about that I found really interesting. And it was, I, as I was contemplating, how do I want to start this conversation? I was going to start by asking what is real. Because you said something like "there's there's things that will say, well, this thing isn't real or this thing isn't true, but it actually has like a very real and a very true biological impact on our bodies, on our minds, our emotions." So what do you do? Like, what what value is it even saying that something is real or is not real when it can have a real impact and a real right. <laughs> effect? Right. Uh, right. On and things. here's
0: the irony of it. This is one of my favorite things. The irony is we like to put a lot of stock into text and the written word and what's real and doctrine and like you know 10,000 years old you know like the things that we put the logical consistency the intellect we put so much weight in now cuz we're living in a modern world where we use a lot of our executive brain but our body has been evolving for 150,000 years just our human parts right mm-hmm. not not even our ape parts or our reptilian parts or our mammalian parts for millions of years and our bodies don't respond to logic our bodies respond to context circumstance other humans and so whether or not i lie to you doesn't matter if i'm having an effect right the, the logic the the reality the doctrine the 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 illusion let's say the illusion still works even if it's an illusion Mm -hmm. Right. And, and that's because our bodies have evolved to affect one another. And I think that's the the coolest thing. So it does not matter if I'm, if I'm lying to you as your girlfriend and pretending to be in love, if you feel loved, you still feel loved. I could Mm -hmm. be lying. It does not matter. The effect's still there. And I think that's, what's so fascinating as humans, we're hardwired to be social. We're not hardwired to be logical.
2: Yeah. So, so is the church true then?
0: I think it has real effect. Yeah.
2: So the church is true.
0: (laughs) You're going to get me to say that.
2: I don't know. I don't know, but it's, it's, you know, like it's one of those things Or like, well, the book of Mormon's not true. So the church can't be true. Because President Hinckley said everything hinges on the Book of Mormon. And if the Book of Mormon is not true, then it all falls apart. Well, guess what? That was also wrong. But it doesn't matter that it was wrong because when you have enough people agreeing on it and living their lives that way and being conditioned to get rewards socially when you're getting the right scripture, mastery scriptures, it doesn't matter if, it doesn't matter who wrote it. (laughs) What matters is I I know that this is what our culture is saying is important and I'm making it important to me and I'm signaling that to you and that gives me biological benefits.
1: Exactly,
2: And yeah, so all of that stuff about us being wired to be social. Yeah. You know, and
0: I wish we could say cult, not church. I actually hate that the church got rid of that term, cult, that they so much because it actually describes so much of what you're talking about. So what, the if, we changed it to, yeah. what if we did to, yeah. if we pro-cult? Is the cult true? My answer would be yes. <laughs> Instead of, is the church true? Because what you're experiencing in that whole thing you just described was not religion. You weren't experiencing doctrine. You experienced a culture. You we had a way of dressing, we had a way of eating, we had our own food, we had our own language, we had our own, you know, practices, our own rituals. It was a culture that you had participated in with shame and guilt cycles, and there's certain margins of acceptability, and if you step out of those margins, you're in trouble. And this is, and this is what a cult is, or a culture is, and that was true.
2: Yeah. I don't know where we go from there.
0: I don't know. (laughs) And it makes understanding Mormons a lot um, more logical. So I think about my parents all the time. They're very believing, true, true, true believing people. And there are times when I get really frustrated with the gospel and I'm frustrated with the church and just like, Oh, how can these be so blatant uh, problems or, or lies or falsifications or whatever. And my parents just don't care. They yeah. are such a part of that culture. It is in their blood. It's in their veins. It's who they are. It's, it's everything and understanding it as this culture that provides them all the meaning, all the social interaction, all the community, all the black and white assurances that make them happy in life. They get that. And, and it's because they're part of this culture and they're happy because they get all of those things. And those are real things that have a really good effect on them. In fact, if I could, like, just give myself a pill of prayer, (laughs) I would do it because it's healthier. But I don't believe in anything, so I can't. You know, there are certain things that the church does give you and provide to you that are really healthy and that have a huge effect on not only your well-being but like your physical and mental health.
2: Yeah. How, how do you define, like, like when you, you, you said, don't call it a church, call it a cult or, you know, like you wish that we could yeah. call it a cult instead of <laughs> calling it a church. How do you make the distinction between those things? Uh, cause you're talking about culture and you talked about clothes that we wear and things that we do. Like, how would you define a cult or culture? You know, how's that different from the church? How is it, you know, anyway, let's just start there. What, what, yeah. what is a cult?
0: Well, there's tons written about it and I am probably not the, well, the, you know, well read in, in the cult research, but I do think that there are certain elements that create what's called like a language ideology. One of my favorite classes I ever took was, um, language and culture at Boston university with this woman named, um, Oh, why am I forgetting her name? Uh, Nancy Hefner. And she just was a brilliant woman that talked about how, uh, culture is formed using language. So you mm-hmm. can have different, um, you know, subcultures based on how you choose to talk, how you choose to, what accent you have, what words you use, what code switching you do. And I felt like it was the best example of culture that we can do. So for example, cause it's hard, even in your podcast, you kind of read the dictionary definition of what sure. a culture is, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, and the way Clifford Gertz describes it is these like little threads, these little webs of significance and Max Weber does that as well. These little webs of significance that kind of hold us all together. You and I find the same information significant in some way. And mm-hmm. we have the same significance because we were kind of encultured to have, to know that this word learned has significance. Mm-hmm. If we were to go to Oakland and talk to someone and say the word learned, they'd be like, why, wh- what is he talking about? Like they wouldn't yeah. get it until so they're out of our culture right so it's basically sharing a uh, 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 language a history uh, a way of being with one another in such a tacit way that you could instantaneously see someone as us versus them yeah kind of and and i love the way that that Language just seems like an easier way to describe that. But we okay. could talk about it through culture, clothing, food, sure. you know, practice, behavior.
2: Yeah, the, 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 way, that, the way that we approached it um, in folklore was we would talk about folk groups. Mm. So rather than, talk, rather than saying that this is a particular culture, we'd say this is a folk group and, and a folk group is defined by those types of things that they share. A, a folk group could be um, Beatles fans. Or it could be tennis players or, you know, it it could be, you know, something with your occupation or it could be a religion, you know, a a hobby. It's when people share these things and there can be low context groups Mm -hmm. that there aren't very many things that they have in common, but there are still significant things and there can be high context groups. Yep. Um, And, you know, so Mormonism was always discussed and and a lot of folklorists have used Mormons, uh, you know, as a, uh, a group, a folk group to study traditions. And y- yeah, you're right. It could be the the clothing that you wear or the food that you make or the art decorations that you put up, or the, the <laughs> architecture of houses. Right. There's, there's so many different things that when it's taught and learned through tradition, it just kind of like reestablishes that culture and, and, and all
0: Re-forces. that. Yep, exactly.
2: So do you, do you think that there is a culture that's forming around people who leave the church? Is there an ex-Mormon culture? I, I would think that there are probably low context folk groups within a larger ex-Mormon group, but I don't know that there's a lot of high context. Right. Ex-Mormon, but but, but what, what do you see? Because I know that's something that uh, we've been, thinking about a lot on Infants on Thrones, and some, some of us talking about it maybe a little bit in the podcast. I think some of our conversations outside of the podcast, like Matt and I have talked about it quite a bit, Right, have been kind of critical of what we're seeing in certain pockets of ex-Mormonism. Right. But I don't know if that's even fair to, to say once somebody leaves the Mormon church, now all of a sudden you're in this other group. Um, so what, do you ever think about that? What, what thoughts do you have oh, on, yeah. uh, ex Mormons as a culture?
0: I think about it all the time. I, I don't know that I'll answer your question perfectly, but the one thing I think is fascinating is I do believe we would have a lot less um people leaving the church if we didn't have the internet if and i I don't mean that from just a knowledge perspective i mean that from a social media perspective yeah when you hear margaret toscano uh, leave the church i mean it's a a heart-rending story i mean she was isolated she was alone so it's so socially outcast now that's the punishment of excommunication is the social ostracism and and being it's almost like the Scientology thing, right? Like you can't see your family, you can't do with your friends. There's a real she couldn't bury her mom, right? There's this real social significance and consequence to being out of the group. And I think all of us Mormons who have left had some pretty major social consequences to leaving, like with our family and our friends and whatever. But we had so many other people to jump with. We had so many other people that were like, no, you're not crazy. You're right. We had all of this other social yeah. um, rewards for leaving. So it wasn't like I just got shamed. I also had ex-Mormons be like, oh, let's talk. Oh my gosh, you, you say it. You know, and we would bond and talk and like help each other socially. And most generations never had that. And I think that you're absolutely right. You need that, that tribe or that social reward for doing something hard in order to do the hard thing. Or a lot of us would have just stayed Mormon and kind of complained and, you know, been in the nursery for a couple more years, right? I mean, I did that for many years, which is, hey, and these are my people and this is my community. And I wasn't going to leave that for nothing, right? But we do leave that when we begin to find these other people and we begin to, we can still have those, feel safe in our social tribe or community. It just is now it's not Mormon. It's it's now ex-Mormons. And I think that you do need that soft landing place However, I think that healthy ex-Mormons <laughs> are able to recreate their tribe. They're able to go find, find out who they really are outside of Mormonism, what they like, what they don't like, kind of where their interests are. And they're able to reform a community that really has all the elements that they need in their social community. I think people who leave the church and can't find that do get stuck in these really they get, they don't build a community outside of let's say their online Facebook group, right? Because Mm -hmm. there's not real people in wherever they live in Missouri, that's ex Mormon that they can go hang out with. And so they spend all their social capital and that all that, you know, all that you're so great. You're such a good person. Keep doing it. That all becomes this online community now. And I think people can get stuck in that and you can get stuck in these cycles on, on social media, that this is how I get validated. This is how I feel loved. This is how I feel respected. And then you, you know, it's not all real. And so I think that adds another element to this. Is it real or is it not thing, which is a lot of us left because we finally had other people we could talk to about this stuff, but those aren't always real relationships. And at the end of the day, I need someone to make me a meal when I'm sick or in the hospital. Right. And not all of those social relationships can do that. And it does affect your health if you don't have these real people. So long story short, I definitely think there are these little subcultures. I definitely think that without those cultures, people wouldn't have left the church at such high rates. But I do think sometimes it's not healthy.
2: That, that, you know, if I was still in academia, maybe that would be something I would propose to research is the the formation of an ex-Mormon community in the way that social media has, or, or at least the role that it's played in uh, allowing people to make these connections. But, but I'd be really interested to look at, um, you know, take it down to the level of. Are there clothes that people wear in common or if you're si- signaling something and and maybe it's not a specific way of, of or a specific type of clothes, but it's a specific way of dressing or going, oh, yeah, I'm going to show my shoulders where before I didn't show my exactly. shoulders or go to, I'm going to get a tattoo where before yeah. I didn't get a tattoo. Exactly. Or, you know, and, and um, that, that there are certain one of the things I, I don't know if you were part of this when. When we did the recording a couple of weeks ago, did I go over cognitive distortions with you when you were on there? I don't know. I don't think that was part. Of it. So, so there, there, was there was one group that before we, oh no, it was the one where we were reviewing the uh, the street epistemologist with the two Mormon missionaries. You weren't on that mm-hmm. one, but but before we started doing that, I um, I had come across these cognitive distortions through Jonathan Haidt, uh, listening to a podcast that he and Sam Harris did about a month ago. And he was talking about these cognitive distortions, which are unhealthy uh, ways of thinking uh, that actually lead to depression and anxiety. And there's, there's methods where you can identify when you have these cognitive distortions and kind of retrain your brain to perceive the world differently. Um, And as I was looking at this list of cognitive distortions, almost every single one of them i thought were very deeply embedded in mormon culture which isn't to say that mormonism is the source of all of these things and that's you know it's this big problem but but so like overgeneralization or black and white thinking um, right or, or looking at the world as shoulds, like you've got this really high ideal and anything that falls low, you know, beneath the ideal, it just wipes out everything. There, there were right. all of these distortions. I thought mind reading was one where, where you, you, you don't really have enough evidence to know what other people yeah. are thinking or feeling, but you think that you do, and you think that they're judging you or that they're off or that they're not worthy or something like that. And, you know we we do that with uh we call it discernment yep. it's gift of the spirit yeah. <laughs> and, and so i i would be really interested to look i i i do want to spend more time trying to to flush out this hypothesis of mine if that's the right word that mormon culture has really um institutionalized a lot of these cognitive distortions and we end up just by virtue of being raised in that culture we start thinking that way without recognizing that we do. And then when you leave the church, you don't just re- rewire your brain. Right. You know, like oh, those yes, ways of it thinking of the world. The church
0: too, though, these all exist outside the church. Oh, of course. So, absolutely. Yeah. And I think it's just, you know, like we were talking about earlier, our brains, the executive part of our brains are not that old. It, it, we have a lot of problems. There's a lot of holes up here, right? There's a lot of, you know, we're not made to be happy. We're made to survive. And so your brain has a lot of tricks it uses to trick you into surviving. And that's how it works. And we're going to find all of these different cognitive distortions, all these logical inconsistencies, because
1: yeah.
0: it doesn't matter if it doesn't affect your survival. You know, that's what matters most. And what matters most to survival for early humans was who is your social group? Yeah. Will they take care of you? Do they have your back? If you're pregnant, and you can't get food, is someone going to bring you food? If you're attacked, will someone keep you alive until you can heal? I mean, that was the difference between life and death. And I think that all of these cognitive distortions, all these logical problems, those are just the result of of a brain that hasn't evolved for very long. You know, an executive part of the brain that hasn't evolved for very long. And what's even more fascinating to me is how sophisticated the social parts of our brains and bodies are in comparison. How sophisticated the church is in enculturing a, a volunteeristic type of attitude, right? So From our youth. Mormons volunteer more than anyone I've ever met, right? Mm-hmm. And it's sophisticated and it keeps our group together. And we feel shame and guilt and our bodies react when we you know, say we're going to go clean the church and then we don't. And all of these I, don't, I wouldn't call them cognitive distortions. What should we call them? All of these social models or modules or modalities that kind of get you to do something or get you to change a behavior or get you to participate in a thing. The church is genius at that. Genius at at herd politics. I don't know what you want to call it. At social enculturation yeah. of Getting people to behave in ways that are both predictable and are in ways that they want.
2: Social conditioning.
0: Social conditioning.
2: Some people might... Call it brainwashing, uh,
0: <laughs> <laughs> but it's not about the brain. That's what I think is so cool. Like,
2: you mean not, it's not just about the brain? It's
0: not just about the brain. Because yeah. when a missionary actually baptizes someone, it says so rare that you get someone that's just wowed by the logic of the church. It's ninety percent of the time yeah. that they develop a the social relationship and yeah. that they feel a part of the group. And that you know what is the church's old model: give them a job, give them a friend, give them a uh what was that yeah everyone in the church, I don't know. A, a guilt trip a friend and a whatever a guilt that, trip i yeah. think is a the guilt third trip. One. yeah and i think that that's the stuff that i think is so riveting is we truly are are the system has social manipulation woven throughout
2: so i I've, i find it interesting that you said that's not the brain though because it's not just the logic Oh, are you?
0: Oh, my husband just needs the keys. <laughs> oh, okay.
2: All right. All right. So you get, to, you get to be the holder of the keys in your household. <laughs> so I think where we were was I was asking you, do you remember what I asked you before your husband asked for the keys? Oh, crap.
0: Um, you were saying something really cool.
2: I know it was really cool. It was really Now cool. I don't remember what it was. So how cool can that be?
0: No, it was. I remember being excited about it. I don't know. Uh, was
2: something about, um, the, 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 a culture forming around ex Mormons, mm. having some of those cognitive distortions in it. Oh, oh, I remember now. Okay. What, what interested me was the way that you talked about the brain where I said, it's these things that are going on inside of your brain, the conversion of the person who's been baptized. And you said, no, it's not the brain because it's not logic. It's actually emotional, but isn't so like, aren't you using kind of like a, a, a metaphor of the brain as being, this is just your oh, yeah. logic tool and not yeah. that your brain is also your major emotional yes. tool I- there. Because yeah. I like something that it all has,
0: happens in the brain. <laughs> it all
2: well in the body. And you in know, like body. how, how does this, like, it's, it's, I, I've, I've been really interested lately in like Buddhism and ego, you know, the ego, like what is yeah. the ego and trying to, to really understand. I, I don't think there's a single place in your brain like you could say yes your prefrontal cortex is your ego but that there's different regions in in your brain that are responsible for consciousness and awareness and that's kind of what we think about when we're saying the ego but like y- you're not consciously making a choice every time you breathe every time your heart beats all of the mechanisms that your body does to grow your hair or to keep your eyes the color that they are or you know all these things that are going on when you're eating food and you're regulating the Vitamins and nutrients that are coming in, and you know, like your body's doing all that, your brain's doing all that, but that's not part of the conscious part right. of of your brain. Your brain and
0: actually doesn't trust you to consciously be aware of all that.
2: Yeah, it, it, <laughs> and, and that's what I wanted to ask you about because you studied this this um, you know uh, evolution this way. Is is it is this a adaptation? of a consciousness or of an ego. I mean, obviously it wouldn't, it wouldn't survive in survival of the fittest if there wasn't a a function, you know, or like if there wasn't an advantage to it. Um, But I think there are some disadvantages too, that we get so caught up in this world that we perceive and these things that we think are so important that we don't realize that a lot of times, most of everything that we need to survive is going on just fine. We don't even have to think about it. And we get caught up in all these other things. And maybe this is a completely different conversation.
0: That's okay. I love it.
2: Yeah. <laughs> but, but that well, we're kind of like trapped in this world of illusion of yeah. our conscious awareness that isn't really even reality. So we think about how do I, maybe it does come back to moral relativism because how, how can you say that there's a uh, absolute truth to everything you know, which is different than than having a measurable fact or something, I guess, right? But when we, I, I don't know, wh- where where would you take what I just said? The mess well, that it is.
0: I think that you are one hundred percent correct. I think that you know one of my favorite books on that, where I really lost my belief in the soul, mm. is um, Stephen Pinker's The Blank Slate. Mm. He talks about the ghost and the machine. And he talks about all of these these tricks that we do to ourselves in order to understand the world and understand our body and brains and how we talk about these things and how they're so false. And it's just a fabrication. You know, there is no ghost in the machine. There is no self. It is your body. That's it. It's a bunch of neurosynaptic connections that make you feel like you. And I find, I found that book so fascinating. I think that, where I would go from here is imagine how much of your body is constantly working, all that resource allocation, all that heart beating, breathing. And it's, and it's most of the time pretty darn good for how complicated a machine we are. Right. And yet what I think my job in life is (laughs) or where I feel my calling or my passion is to uncover some of those unconscious ways that our body is constantly reacting to other people. And the way that our brain is rewarding us with dopamine and oxytocin when we do something good socially and punishing us with feelings of anxiety and heart and just like, uh, I don't, there's not a great emotional word for it, but the feeling where you just feel sick to your stomach at night because you said something stupid and you just are replaying that stupid thing you said over and over yeah. and you feel horrible, right? Yeah. That's your body punishing you, literally sending chemicals that make you feel bad so that you think about that and don't do it next time. It's like burning your finger on a stove, right? You, you, you experience pain in order to shift behavior. And I think what's so fascinating is how many of our body systems have been co-opted to make us better at being social. And I think there's a whole field of study in that where, it, from pain to reward pleasure and reward centers to different hormonal you know behavioral endocrinology to placebo effect to whatever there's an entire field that really studies these these things that 90% of humans don't think twice about i mean i give these talks at these conferences where i talk about how important your social group is i mean the current um, surgeon general had a quote just a couple months ago that said being lonely or having weak social ties is worse for your health and your life expectancy than if you smoked 15 cigarettes a day. Mm. It's th- that bad. And in fact, what, been- about <laughs> what about 14? What about 14? Well, what is this? What's was interesting. They used to equate it to obesity, which is killing. I mean, have diabetes, heart disease, obesity is one of the biggest killers, especially in America. Yeah. And the surgeon general just said weak social ties has just outranked obesity in the health problems it causes. And what's crazy is up until the last couple of years, people just weren't really studying the physiology or the biology of social connections. And some of the first research in this field was done by health insurance companies that mm. found out it was lonely people that were costing them all the money because they were going to the doctor to get basic care, basic friendship, basic, you know, human touch, basic whatever. And it was costing, they cost the most. Yeah, lonely people are the most expensive, and so they started using things to like deny people coverage if they didn't have enough friends. Wow! And so I, I, I think that as we approach the church, I always want to look at it from that social perspective because I think that people don't quite realize that they just went through, and and maybe this is a really offensive word, but I feel like a social genocide. I mean, you, you, you went through something that is so painful to your body. No human was meant to be a part of a culture and then be like, screw it and walk completely away from that culture. That is one of the hardest things a human can do. They studied stress and other than like death, divorce, abuse, migration, being like uprooted from one culture and popped in another is one of the most stressful things you could possibly do. And it's, it's very painful, low health outcomes. You know, every social and health indicator says these are not great for your health. Right. Right. And that's basically what we did to ourselves is we took ourselves from a culture that we were comfortable in, that we understood the rules, even the tacit rules. We knew where our place was. We knew what our future was. We knew everything. And we purposefully plopped ourselves into this new land where we know nothing and nothing makes sense anymore. And that's it. Enormously uh, painful and and harmful to your health thing that we just went through, and I don't quite think people realize the magnitude of that and how yeah. rare it is in human culture.
2: Yeah,
0: all because of logic, right? We did that to ourselves because we're like, yeah. wait, a plus, you know, two plus two does not equal five, so you guys must be wrong. Well, the reality is. In any other time period or culture, it wouldn't matter if two plus two is isn't five. You need to survive. This is your group. Yeah. <laughs> this is your culture. Figure out how to survive within it. And it doesn't really matter. I mean, how many different logical regimes did people live in over the course of their lifetimes? I mean, no sense.
2: Right. You just conform to what you need to conform yeah. to to survive. Exactly. Sure. Yeah. And so
0: the fact that we willingly left is just, to me, wow, it, it's, it's pretty fascinating and i think we need to talk about the social the real social consequences of that even the physical consequences of that
2: well you suggested a book uh when when we first started getting on talking and i went and i bought it on audible so i'm gonna listen to it and then we're gonna we're gonna record another one of these where we talk about it do do you want to tease what that book is so that listeners want to listen to it or read it and some people actually read books these days the words that are on the page (laughs) Uh, I'm a reader.
0: I'm not a listener. I'm a reader. Yeah. Um, it's called Social by Matthew Lieberman, and it's called Why Our Brains Are Wired to Connect. He's a social neuroscientist who's really doing some cutting-edge stuff right now with his wife Naomi Eisenberger, where they're really kind of understanding the root of of um, I shouldn't say the root. What they're discovering is how many of our different body systems, and they just studied the the um, the brain. I study all the different body systems. They just study the brain. But even in the brain, how many things have been co-opted to make us social? How many different parts, how much energy, how many resources go in to constantly being social? And they have some really great fMRI studies. And one of my favorite things that they discovered was that the brain is the most costly organ in your whole body. It takes about a third of all your energetic resources. Sure. Yeah. So they, th- they said, well, what happens when the brain is off? like when you're just bored and you're just kind of sitting there and it would be a good time to kind of turn off the brain, right. And let it heal, let it repair, put some of that energetic resources to something else. And what they discovered though, is that never happens when people's brains are in the off mode, quote unquote, they're actually daydreaming and they're practicing, they're practicing being social. When we're not thinking of something, we're often thinking of past social relationships, future social relationships, imaginary social relationships. You know, what I wish this social relationship was. What if I meet someone on a beach someday? That's so. Yeah, you're
2: not making me feel better here because I want to find (laughs) that off switch. Yeah. There's times I I want to get that that incessant, constant chatter to just shut the fuck up. Just shut up, brain, and uh, like my own consciousness reflecting yeah. on things. And uh, you know, there's certain Brain's things that you can do to get into up. that state. I, I, you know, there's yeah. things that can be done, <laughs> but um, you know, like trying to find that that off switch, at least a temporary off switch, just to give a, a break is ugh.
0: Well, but, but, I, know, I
2: think that's different than just the brain. I mean, because we're only yeah. talking about a small part yeah. of the brain that's doing all that stuff, but seems to take up all of. My waking attention yes. because of all this chatter that I keep hearing.
0: Well, and think about it. Just think about like um, one of my favorite scenes from Up in the Air, the movie with um, George Clooney and Anna Kendrick, is when he's talking about this backpack. You know, what would you feel with this backpack if you if your house was burning down or something? Mm. And then, what if you could fill your social relationships in that backpack? How heavy would that backpack be? And that's kind of how I like to think about social relationships: is if we're really talking about the load that you're carrying socially imagine when your life was in disarray, when your marriage was in disarray or you're leaving the church or your kids are struggling. It is like a backpack full of concrete. You just are carrying this enormous social load. It affects every aspect of your day. And yet when people talk about relationships, when we talk about community, oh, it's something external to us. It's, you know, sticks and stones may hurt my bones, but words will never hurt me. It's not true. Your social relationships actually inflict the most pain of anything that you've ever experienced. Um, When I give talks, I have people say, you know, what's the greatest pain you've ever experienced. And I want them to think about that. Truly think about that. And 99% of the time it's social. And I've had someone come up and say, you know, I've had my leg cut nearly off with a propeller of a boat. And my biggest heartache was not that. I mean, my, my most pain was not that. It was being you know abused or broken up with or a divorce or a death or a grief or loss or heartbreak. Our biggest pain is social. And he even talks about this in the book a little bit. Your brain's wired to do that. It's like um, your brain is wired to remember the bad more than the good. We know that. That's why we have such negative yeah. thinking patterns, right? Your brain is wired right. to go over and over those times that you failed socially, those faux pas that you made. And our brain just recycles. I mean, I wish I could just get rid of all the the tracks in my head that I constantly replay and make myself feel bad, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but your brain's wired that way so that next time around, you're going to choose a better partner or you're going to not say that social faux pas that lost you the job interview or you're going to, right? It, it, it's, it's all uh, rooted in making you have more status, more friends, you know, be more protected socially and in with people and that's what we're constantly we're like these little little mice in a race to see who can have the most friends and that's our drive
2: and 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 now you 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 connect all of those mice to each other through social media over the last fifteen years, and no wonder we're having growing pains and it just, you know, like we're getting bombarded with these signals from people.
0: Your body and brain were never meant to handle 5,000 friends. Yeah. On the Pleistocene, it's like a family reunion. You had maybe six cohorts that were your same age. I think about hunters and gatherers right now in, 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 there's not that many tribes left over that are still hunter gatherers, but their societies aren't that big. The max society that really functions is the, the whole 150 theory. Right. You know there's a ton of books on that. So in a community that's about 150 years of people, how many of those Which would- Which is actually, about
2: the active number of people in any given ward.
0: Yeah. And how many of those would be your gender, your age, your right. whatever, whatever. That's the normal amount of, of social stress, uh, chess. I call it like chess because you're constantly thinking a couple moves ahead. Mm-hmm. Oh, this didn't like this, so I won't do this next time. Oh, I know they like this, so I'm going to do this. You're, and we don't know you're doing it. It's all unconscious. It's just like the body works without you thinking. Your, your social chess game is constantly in the background. No matter if you're around another person, you're doing work, right? Mm-hmm. And see, and now magnify that by 5,000. And we just were never made to handle that skill of sociality. And I think it's, it's like killing us. It's killing our youth. Yeah, they're literally going against survival. They are committing suicide in order to not feel. So much is going on socially, you know. It's fascinating, yeah. and it's terrible, and it's it's tragic. And I hope we can we can fix it. But I do think that this concept of social susceptibility is the term that I kind of coined. But whatever you know, scientists that you like that t- studies the way that our social um, relationships and interactions affect our health and our happiness. I think that's going to be the next te- decade. I think that's going to be kind of where all this cutting edge research is coming, or what yeah. people are talking about, you know?
2: Well, I, I, I read this Michael Pollan book out of your mind. Do you um, know that book?
0: Mm-hmm.
2: David, great. Have you read that? I haven't read it. So I, I heard that, it's amazing. that's what I, that's what I hope happens. I, I mm-hmm. hope that, I, I hope that these, uh, Entheogen, the psychedelic substances, yep. get get uh, w- whatever legal, legalized, w- where you could put them in the hands of a trained therapist, and say, "All right, we're gonna we're gonna come in." You, you said earlier, Chelsea, that you wish that you could rewire mm-hmm. those negative thought patterns in your brain, and what Michael Pollan is saying is, actually, you can. Yeah, that, that's definitely. what he called the book "How to Change Your Mind." You can do that, but you know, to, to be able to, to have somebody who's really skilled, maybe a shaman, you know, somebody that like understands the psychology, understands the culture and can try to help you fit better into society as society is evolving. And, you know, I mean this, this stuff with the internet, it's just going to increase It's you know, like what, what's it going to do for this, this species over time? You know, it's, it's really interesting, but we, we are going through these, growing pains i'm i'm certain that it's it's a result of our technology speeding like forcing our biology to go faster than it really can (laughs) yep yep
0: yep and we're paying the consequence of that and i do think that the next couple generations are going to learn how to balance it out a little more than us i think that you know i grew up with a cordless i mean cordless phones were cool like oh my gosh i don't have the long curly (laughs) cord you know So I grew up with all the different technologies uh, being introduced and just diving in like, Oh, Facebook, I'm going to dive in. Oh, this yeah. new smartphone, I'm going to dive in. And I think that younger generations where it's not all new and exciting, where it's like, well, you know, smartphones have been around forever. Maybe they'll find a little bit more balance than we did um, in the oversharing, in the privacy sector, in the, there's so many problems, but I'm hoping just the social part that kids will figure out how to balance that out a little more. Yeah. Cause I'm, I love technology. I'm not anti-technology in any way. I am anti-social media though, which is interesting. So,
2: yeah. Well I don't think that's going away either. Yeah. Uh, You know, I mean like we're, we're not really that far away from when you Put a computer chip into your head, and instead of like googling something on your phone by tapping on a screen, you just think it, and it pops up, and it's right there. You know, like when everybody's connected that way, shit. That's that's insane. That that that's an episode of Dark Mirror or Black Mirror. Is that? Yeah, I love Black Mirror. I love Black Mirror.
0: Dystopian.
2: Futures, well, but. I
0: actually think, so I'm a little bit different than most of my nerd guy friends when they're like, we're going to be able to download human consciousness soon. We're going to be able to, you know, all that stuff. I don't think so. I Ever? Think that I you don't, don't think, think within a
2: hundred years?
0: I am not sure. I think that <laughs> the social parts of our bodies and our brains are so sophisticated and so complicated that we have barely scratched the surface. I, I agree have barely scratched the surface and that's the part of our brain computer that is the most uh, complicated and we have not even come close yeah the logical part we, we can kind of figure out a lot of this stuff but when we actually get to the social part the stuff that really affects us the most we're just not even close we're not even close we don't know how to figure it all out yet
2: but it already but it's already happened it's just it's just in the future and we haven't gotten there yet yeah <laughs> Time's an illusion, Chelsea.
0: In, uh, oh, this is my least favorite Elon Musk thing. Oh, we're just in a simulation. And yeah, I I, I need well, to look into
2: that. I've heard about that. I haven't, but we we are in a simulation. If, if like, like I was thinking about this the other day, you know, the, the, the movie, The Matrix, when, you know, at the end of the first movie, when Keanu is able to, like, see everything in, like, digits, you know, like, the world is just, yeah, like, all this code. Knows, just yeah. code. Like, if if your eyes were able to look at a molecular or a subatomic level at every person that's what we would look like we're we're all this swirling energy that's coalesced and it's gathered into this body called chelsea or this body called glenn or you know this chair that i'm sitting on or, you know like all of these things that it's it is all just energy And I don't know, I don't know where I'm going.
0: But what makes human, and this is the part that's ineffable to me, because what, is that the correct usage of that word?
2: Ineffable means that you cannot define it or there's no, there's no definition for it. Okay, I
0: I think I used it right. So what's ineffable to me is that the second part after that is, oh crap, what were you just saying? Um. I got stuck on the word definition. I, I, was,
2: I was going to tell you how all energy and matter matter um, at a subatomic level is intelligence.
0: Oh, so what's ineffable to me or what's the most <laughs> exciting part to me is what makes humans unique in this kind of all organic matter is just a series of atoms and particles and you know proteins and we mix together and there's really nothing different about humans than any other animal, right? If we're right. looking at just like a chromosomal or- The like, biology, sure. Right. But what I think is an ineffable is that our brains are one of the, you know, all social animals are like this, but ours are even more robust that have these prolonged periods of learning that our environment actually um, imprints on those neural connections to make them something different than they were before. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the part that, that imprinting or how culture gets under the skin Yeah. And, and the fact that we have the longest juvenility of any other species, we have the longest brain development of any other species. And within that brain development, we are not only able to imprint on the earth around us, we're able to imagine and make up and be irrational and come up, construct religious ideology and construct worlds that that have no bearing in organic matter. Right. And I think that that's the part we can't, duplicate that's the part we can't put on a computer that's the part that i think will never be able to download it's this lifelong contextual learning that imprints on the brain i don't know that's the ineffable part to me that i think is the most exciting
2: yeah um several several months ago we did a smackdown of a band uh ted talk by uh rupert sheldrake Where and and Rupert Sheldrake has this theory called morphic resonance, where he's basically saying that that the memories in nature exist I don't know where, but not not physically, biologically stored in the brain, but accessed through the brain. Like he talks about the brain as being like a more like a transistor you know, or mm-hmm. something that tunes into the signal. So, so basically what, if I understand what he's saying, and, and I, I haven't looked that closely into this either. It was mainly just for this, this episode that we did back, I think, February, um, that, that he's saying that there is like an internet of all things already.
0: Hmm. That's just and life it's, it's, and nature. Life, And we're just, um, the computer systems actually learning from <laughs> Yeah.
2: And, and I, I mean, I wouldn't, wouldn't say like a computer system, but just like, w- where do habits of nature and instincts come from as they're being passed genetically from one species to another? like, like he, he says, if you train rats in London to go through a maze, and then you train them in other places in the world, just after the ones in, in London have figured it out, they'll figure it out quicker because there's some kind of like shared
0: well, string theory stuff,
2: maybe mm-hmm. string theory, maybe it's at a, at a, like a yeah That's quantum cool. level or something like that. But oh. you know, like when, when you look back in at the history of human development and the agricultural revolution that happened roughly around the same time in disparate parts of the world where there wasn't contact with each other. So is it possible that there is some kind of like intelligence at that subatomic level where there's data. You were saying something earlier that was making me think about that when you were talking about how culture imprints on our, like what, like what were you talking about that it imprinted on? What does, what does it imprint on?
0: Human learning. Um, There's another good book. I keep recommending these books um, called the encultured brain about neuroanthropology. It's one of my favorites. They talk a lot about this and they kind of break it down that there is, that the human brain is so plastic in order to learn from its environment, to learn the specific language, right? We're born with language centers, but what language we will actually learn, the actual conjugations, the actual characters is dependent on our culture. And then that imprints on the brain, right? Like
2: there's there's certain, the, the, the way I was taught that in my linguistic class was like, you've got this switchboard that can incorporate any language on the planet. Yeah. And as you're going through in those like early developmental years and you're hearing where you are, you'll like flip on the glottal L switch or flip it off or, you know, like things, things like that, that they've been able to to say. So like, where does that switchboard exist that we're being born into this world with this blank canvas? And we've just got that. I mean, that, that's, that's the process of evolution and, our genome, is it, is it just genome or is there something else to it?
0: Well, the, yeah, there, well, there's a ton. So there's two different ways to handle this. So one way to handle it is to talk through the actual science there. So there mm-hmm. is a genetic, it's called a PKU, I think, gene. And there's this really cool story about this, this family that wasn't born with that gene and they're unable to construct sentences. So there's nothing mm-hmm. wrong with their brain. But they're lacking the part that allows them to syntax, like to put syntax together correctly. That's one of those switchboard things. Humans just know there's always a subject, there's always an object, and you can you know, and you can say sentences correctly. This one gene does not allow you to do that. And they were able to discover it because it's one family in London that has this, this PKU gene or whatever. So there is a genetic, part of that switchboard mm-hmm. there's also a morphological part of that switchboard you know philip you know the whole was it philip gage that shot himself and changed his personality like all the psychology oh, right yeah, of yeah. Like actual morphology does uh, impact you however mm-hmm. neural cells are so plastic that you a different part of the brain can take over some of the functioning and we know that for certain types of your cells can do multiple jobs so there's a cellular there's a chromosomal there's a morphological, you know, there's all these different things. And I, I am not in any way persuaded by the, like it exists out there. No, no, it's all biology. And we're just not smart enough to figure it out yet.
2: Yeah. But, but, but even if you say it's all it's- out there, you're saying it like in this kind of woo, like woo way, like it's all out there. Yeah. But, and then you, and then you go, but it's not because it's all biology, but all biology is out there too. I mean, you can, yeah. can you describe anything in this world that you can't, uh, relate to biology.
0: Well, what so for me, the way I chemistry it, it or wherever not, the
2: lines are drawn between the scientific disciplines,
0: right? There's to me, nothing exists out in the world. What the magic is, is when my specific brain goes into a specific context, that interaction creates something new that's never happened before in life is my brain then starts to imprint on the context that I'm at. It starts to learn something. It starts to pick up on things. It starts to adjust my biology depending on my context. I've now learned a skill, let's say, and then I can use that skill in the next context, the next place I go. So to me, the environment is just context and your brain is the thing constantly changing dependent on that environment. And then it lasts with you. In fact, there's some great genetic studies on abuse where they're able to show that certain cultures like African-American males have certain health problems because of the abuse that their great, great grandfathers suffered. You know, there's, and it's new, it's new research, but it's starting to come out that there's these genetic genetic uh, suffering basically that there there are these things uh, epigenetic imprinting um, there are these things that literally exist in our biology but are only brought out turned off that switchboard turned on or off dependent on the context we're in and i think that's the part that's ineffable is that my brain Will basically create something that's never been in existence, and it will never be in existence after. And each of our brains is able to do that, and that's the stuff that we can't quite replicate and we can't quite understand.
2: Sorry about that. My nine-year-old just came home, and my fifteen-year-old is texting me and saying, "Can you come pick me up now?"
1: Oh yeah. yeah. Um,
2: so we got it. We've got to wrap it up. But... Hey. We'll do this. We'll, we'll, we'll do this again. Um, over,
0: um, yeah, let's read social. Let's talk about it. We'll each pick like our five most favorite parts or something.
2: Yeah. Yeah. We'll do something like that with social. That sounds good. Um, and, um, yeah, genetics and epigenetics and biology, you know, my, my whole, my, my whole worldview is it's in a constant state of flux, which I think, we all are just anyway, as, as right. living, living, wiggly creatures. Um, of course, being, being raised Mormon, this very dualistic worldview where I thought, well, there is stuff that's matter and then there's stuff that's spiritual. Even though Joseph Smith says in the Doctrine and Covenants, there's, there's no distinction between those two things. Now that I've left the church and I, you know, I've been through the atheist phase, I, I, I think I'm swinging out of that. Kind of like a pendulum thing, not mm-hmm. not not where like I'm going to go and adopt a- any human definition of God, but this this idea of um like mate- a separation between material and spiritual things. Mm-hmm. I-, I just don't see that any. I think that's an old, outdated model that doesn't really serve us anymore. Because if it, you know, like, if you're talking about what is a spirit and you go okay well if i was trying to des- describe a spirit when i was a mormon i would have said that it was energy or or i think the way that it's defined in the doctrine and covenants is it's light or if it's like refined light or purified right. light or something right. like that well what what are we made of we're made out of energy we we're, we're you know so do we have a spirit in that sense that is eternal i mean the 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 energy that we're made up of, I think is eternal. I don't think that it's always organized in this form that I'm in right now. I don't even think that the energy that I have that makes me up is the same energy I had nine years ago because all of these things change and you know, it's just, it's just weird. But I don't think that, that going into these kinds of conversations and saying, Oh, well, that sounds like woo to me. That's not scientific. That's in the, you're a dualist if you're talking about spiritual things I think it's just a way of shutting down conversation and shutting down inquiry that um, I, I'm interested in pushing past that and it, just exposing my own ignorance and just curiosity with these kinds of things. So I'd love to have more conversations
0: absolutely,
2: like this with yeah. you, Chelsea.
0: One last thing I'll say, because I know you have to go. That's fascinating because to me, that's where the magic starts to happen, is I, hate, I hated the church to when they taught um, ex- is it ex-nelio Ex um, creation of man? Just out of blue, mm-hmm. man was created, right? Mm-hmm. I, I, I hated that. Because to me, the magic of evolution is an understanding how the human eye developed over time and it's sure. backwards, upside down and like how our guts devolved and how our heart evolved and all the little things that needed to happen for us to have a brain that can even believe in an abstract thing like God. Yeah. I think is that's the miracle. That's the magic. Yeah. yeah. And so when I think about... Steven Pinker's book about the ghost in the machine, a lot of my other colleagues who were religious were hated that book because it it really does get everything down to biology. There is no spirit. There is no matter. There is no, right. And they hated that book, but I found magic in it because to me, as an explorer, as a scientist, I don't like the woo-woo. I want to get rid of the woo-woo and dive deeper into the, well, then how does that neural connection actually form? And how? what is that?
2: We can't end on this note, though. I know. Well, we, we can't end on this note because you say yeah. you hate the woo, and I love the woo. I, <laughs> l- I love the woo. I don't know how you can understand the human mind without understanding the woo that's in it, and explore like all, all of the beliefs and things that make up people who they are without the the woo part of that too. And uh, just,
0: the woo part, if we had enough information, is always understandable.
2: But, and, and it kind of goes back to what you're talking about earlier with these, these things that we'd say, well, that's not real, but it has a real impact on you. So right. like, is there a value in understanding woo? I mean, does, does woo actually make a real imprint oh, it on totally people's does. lives in the world? It <laughs> like, absolutely I'm going to have to read that Stephen Thinker book. Yeah. You'll too. like it. Um
0: it's a long one, yeah. so you feel free to like jump around in it. I do
2: okay with long books. I listen to them. It's
0: so one I of those think. like. It's one of those like, and I, and he's not my favorite person in the world. Actually, uh, yeah. he debated after the Larry Sumner thing, this this um this female male thing, and I think he did a terrible yeah. job. But yeah.
2: Anyway. Oh oh, and I I I also wanted to say like that magic that you said that you found in looking at the way that. The eye evolved, or you know, the 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 way that we have evolved to where we are. The, the the magic that I find in this, and and especially most recently, is just trying to not identify myself only as a Homo sapien that was born in 1972 and is living right now in 2018, but that I'm a product of this Earth that's called life, mm-hmm. and I'm 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 one of trillions and trillions and trillions of living things that this earth has created and that continues to evolve and i'm on a specific line of that that we can all trace back to you know common ancestry single-celled organisms but it's all life Mm -hmm. and and everything that's going on is a way of life trying to adapt and evolve to this hostile environment and this is the way that we've done it but there's others around us mushrooms and Birds and, you know, I mean, just like all, right. all of these other it's, forms it's of about, life that, that we we feel like we're separate from. We feel like we're uh, superior to um, because of our consciousness and intellect and all kinds of things like that. And allowing us to exploit them and violate these morals that may or may not actually exist in the outside world. But um, And yeah, Mother I, Nature of,
0: took a big risk on the ego because guess what? We're now killing the earth off. We're killing other species off. We've yeah. now conquered every single continent that could possibly be conquered. And it's because this, this and you could argue, it's because we have this really strong sense of self and, and like ego that like, I'm going to go conquer that. I have yeah. a right to that. I have self, 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 right? That allowed us to flourish in a way that other species have not ever been kind of t- at this rate or this degree. Yeah. And it's a bet that mother nature did and it might actually destroy us all.
2: But is it is it bad? Is it wrong? Or is it just natural? This is just the that this is I'm just doing what has been done on other worlds. What is that? Being the fruit that grows out of this world, in this, you know, that's what we are. We're we're fruit, man. We're fruit. And it's like this out this 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 outer body, this mind, all these things. We're we're just a delivery system for the genetic code that we're passing on to future generations and evolving and perfecting over time. That's all we are. That's it. And stop.
0: I'm going to take one. uh, I'm going to take umbrage with one thing you said. We are just one, just one. We are evolving. We're not perfecting. So evolution doesn't make things perfect. It just makes things adapted to their environment. And what, people, did
2: I, what did I say with the word perfect? We're always that...
0: evolving and we're perfecting. And I think that that's a Mormon cognitive distortion. You're probably
2: right, yeah. Progression. Yeah, yeah. We're
0: always progressing. We're always getting better. That's a very, And that's not how evolution works. It's not ever supposed to make someone perfect. It's just in this context, who survives more,
2: who right. survives less. In, 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 this, in this ever-changing hostile environment yes. it's it's whatever adapts to be able to overcome and that that's what I meant by exactly perfecting. but but we're whether it's improvement whether it's progress whether it's right. not it is overcoming and and so where we've got challenges like this social media on brains that did not evolve to be connected to this many people in this way yes. continue to evolve
0: and no, not only that, our bodies have evolved to our environments traditionally, yeah, right? Yeah. Climate, shelter, clothing, food. And what we've created is such mass human technology and human culture that our bodies are now adapting to man-made things. And I think mm-hmm. that that is a huge shift in human evolution if we're ever going to go back and kind of the Pleistocene. And I think this this time period will be our next big shift, which is, we're now, our bodies and brains are constantly adapting to worlds we ourselves created. And we don't know how they're going to change.
2: And you know what's funny? And this, this really is where we have to end, uh, <laughs> even though it's going to be hard to, is that um, we also make this distinction between something that's natural and something that's man-made. Come on. It's all We're, It's all natural yeah we, we are nature we are yeah. natural if we yeah. make something we're not making it you know it's like that that ex nihilo yes. uh creation yeah, thing about mormonism we're not creating something out of nothing we're not like even when we're synthesizing new chemicals and things like that it's just we're manipulating yeah. nature we're creating nature it's all natural and that's where we'll end yep right. <laughs> cool thanks chelsea it's good to talk to you you too Bye. Okay. Wow. Look, I got to tell you, Chelsea and I recorded this episode about a month ago and I haven't listened back to it until today. And I really enjoyed listening back to it. I hope you did too. I'm going to go back and listen to it again. Now there's one thing before wrapping up here that I do want to clarify that may or may not have come out and all of the things that we talked about in this episode. And that's the idea, this weird idea of this energetic biological internet of all things. Maybe it's close to Rupert Sheldrake's idea of morphic resonance. I still haven't spent any considerable time looking very closely at that, but I do like what I think of the idea. I like thinking about evolution as the way that life grows and adapts and improves, not perfects, I got it, Chelsea, improves in its capacity to survive in a hostile environment, an ever-changing hostile environment. And that the trials and errors of evolution not only express themselves within each evolved species of life, but maybe also connect to some great underlying source of life that began growing out of this planet in the first place. I like thinking of that. I like thinking about the trillions of cells that make up each human body, the way that they function like tiny machines. How each cell contains within its nucleus the DNA genetic code for everything that is possible for our bodies to do. And that genetic code that has evolved over millions of years of trial and error. I like thinking about the way that environmental stimuli interact with those cells and determine how cells develop and function. Which genes get turned on and which genes remain dormant. The way that our cells integrate with the environment around them and communicate with each other, passing information back and forth to regulate healthy cellular function. And I like to think of the impact that we have on the very environment that in turn is impacting our very biology. I like wondering if that same kind of environmental integration and communication that exists between our cells also exists with the trillions of atoms that make each cell what it is, and if that same integration and communication also exists between the atoms and its subatomic energy, the protons, neutrons, and electrons that make our atoms what they are. If there really is anything like a morphic resonant internet of all things, that's where I would expect to find it. Not in some kind of magical woo-woo something that's out there, as Chelsea said, but as some kind of intelligent, incomprehensible, living hard drive of energy that is impacted by the things that we do, retains a memory of those things, and shares that memory across the entire energetic field that each particle is a part of. And I'm getting this from something that I heard recently from theoretical physicist David Tong in an excellent lecture that I watched a week or two ago on YouTube called Quantum Fields, the Real Building Blocks of the Universe. Just listen right here to what he said about the energy that
1: you and I are all made from. The very best theories we have of physics don't rely on particles at all. The best theories we have tell us that the fundamental building blocks of nature are not particles, but something much more nebulous and abstract. The fundamental building blocks of nature are fluid-like substances which are spread throughout the entire universe and ripple in strange and interesting ways. Okay? That's the fundamental reality in, in which we live. Uh, these fluid-like substances we have a name for, uh, we call them fields. The, the physicist's definition of a field is the following. It's something that, as I said, is spread everywhere throughout the universe. It's something that takes a particular value at every point in space. And what's more, that value can change in time. Okay? So, the picture to have in your mind is a field, sorry, is a fluid which uh, ripples and sways throughout the universe. The Force? Now, the Force is what gives the Jedi his power.
0: It's an energy field created by all living things. It surrounds us and penetrates us, it binds the galaxy together.
1: So, there is spread everywhere throughout this room, something that we call the electron field. Okay, it's like a fluid that fills this room and in fact fills the entire universe. And the ripples of this electron fluid, the ripples of uh, the waves of this fluid, get tied into little bundles of energy by the rules of quantum mechanics. And those bundles of energy are what we call the particle, the electron. All the electrons that are in your body are not fundamental. All the electrons that exist in your body are waves of the same underlying field. Okay, we're all connected to each other. It's like you know, the waves uh, on the ocean all belong to the, the same underlying ocean. Uh, the electrons in your body are the s- ripples of the same field as the electrons in my body. talking about midi-chlorians, I've been wondering, what are midi-chlorians? Midi-chlorians are a microscopic life form that resides within all living cells. They live inside me. Inside your cells, yes. And we are symbionts with them. Symbionts? Life forms living together for mutual advantage. Without the midi-chlorians, life could not exist, and we would have no knowledge of the force. They continually speak to us, telling us the will of the Force. When you learn to quiet your mind, you'll hear them speaking to you. I don't understand. With time and training, Annie, you will.
2: You will. What do you think of that? Now, this isn't just George Lucas science fiction or Deepak Chopra woo. Maybe the midi-chlorian bit, could be, maybe. But what did David Tong say? All of the electrons in your body and in my body are all connected to the same electron field that fills the universe like waves on a common sea. That's cutting edge science stuff from a fellow of Trinity College at Cambridge. But of course, I try to be careful with what I do with it, because nothing in what David Tong said supports the idea of intelligence or shared memory, morphic, resonant internet hard drive of all things. Those are just ideas that I like thinking of and playing around in my imagination because I just find it fascinating. But also what it's doing for me is it's kind of bringing back some of that spiritual, in quotes, awe and wonder That meaning to life that Mormonism used to fill for me. Where I'm able to imagine myself as one of trillions of life forms born into this world who thinks and feels and experiences what I and only I, with my unique combination of everything that makes me who I am, what only I could or ever will think and experience and feel. And I like to imagine that all of that information from my experiences and then by extension all of yours is communicated through our bodies down to our cells, our atomic and subatomic parts into this imaginary, common, intelligent, hard drive energy field that I like to think of as life. That universal hard drive that I not only feed information into but maybe can even glean information out of through instincts, intuitions, feelings. Once I quiet my mind and become a Jedi Master, of course, maybe. But, you know, this is where it all gets a little bit dangerous because I I don't want to get all Lafferty Brothers with this one. But whether these things that I like to imagine turn out to be scientifically proven or not, because, I've got to say, quantum field theory that David Tong is talking about It's mathematically sound, but it's not demonstrable in the real world. They can't prove it with scientific experimentation. That's why they're called theoretical physicists, because we don't yet have the tools to do it. But regardless, if it has a real impact on my life, doesn't that kind of make it sort of real? Even if just in a Chelsea kind of placebo way? Because I'll tell you this much. Thinking along these lines has really helped me stay more calm in several situations recently when I would have previously gotten anxious or upset. But most of all, it's just fun to think about for me and maybe for you too and maybe not. But I'm the one creating this episode right now, aren't I? So if you're interested in hearing more along these lines and even contributing to a conversation like this, Come join Chelsea and I on Sunday, December 2nd for our discussion on the book Social. And as always, thank you for listening to Infants on Thrones.
1: This is Hillary, Matthew, Matthew Ryan, Carol, Keith,
2: Ashley, and I like to play bingo online while listening to Infants on Thrones. You
1: can comment on this episode on the website, infantsonthrones.com. And
2: if you really like what you hear,
0: give the quorum a five-star rating and write a short review on iTunes.
1: I did.
2: I did. I did. Anyone for the closing prayer? Isn't it amazing? Isn't it amazing that we are alive? We typically define life as anything with a capacity to metabolize, to grow, to reproduce, to respond to stimuli, to evidence some degree of intelligence, and of course, to die. Yes, that unavoidable ability to die to cease the functions of life, to degrade back into the building blocks whose cooperation and diversification and harmony made us alive in the first place. But that's what each of us are, a single, self-contained, living organism. Well, single and self-contained may be stretching it just a bit because there are actually around 32 trillion cells in the human body and each one of those cells is alive. They metabolize, they grow, they reproduce, they respond to stimuli, they have enough intelligence to communicate and coordinate with other cells, to diversify, to cooperate in harmony, and of course They also eventually, unavoidably, die. That's what cells are, single, self-contained living things. Isn't it amazing that you're not really a single, self-contained living organism, but are rather trillions of single, self-contained living cells? Well, single and self-contained may be stretching it just a bit because there are actually around 100 trillion atoms in any given human cell. And of course, atoms are made of electrons and neutrons and protons, which are made of quarks, which are, according to theoretical physicists, rippling waves of multiple fields of energy that connect everything to everything else. It's the basic stuff that we're made of. Physicists call this quantum field theory. Look it up. But the point I want to make is this. Actually, there are two. First, look inward. Inward. Have you ever reasoned that God can't possibly exist because how could a kind, loving, omnipotent, omniscient God allow so much suffering in the world? Innocent women and children are starved, raped, abused, killed, An omniscient, omnipotent God supposedly has the power to intervene and save. So if he really exists and if he really is kind and loving, why doesn't he do so? It's the problem of evil. So maybe we then reason that his lack of intervention is evidence of a truth that there must not be a God. Or perhaps you reason that the idea that we have of God is seriously flawed or just a man-made projection upon the world, a projection of human hopes and fears onto the world as we know it. Maybe God is just a metaphor. Okay, so let's look at that metaphor as another metaphor. Do you have living cells in your body right now that are suffering? Are you starving? Any of those cells of nutrients? Are you intentionally putting things into your body that increase the risk of cancer? Do you regularly kill brain cells as a way to party and have a good time? Do you have the power to intervene and save them, but you just aren't doing it? Now, this isn't meant to guilt or shame you. It's impossible to live a life that doesn't do damage to ourselves. I'm not suggesting that you need to do anything to change. I'm simply suggesting another way of looking at things. Because if the cells in your body were intelligent enough to conceive of themselves as individual, self-contained living things, and if they projected their own hopes and fears onto the world as they know it, whatever that might look like to them, would you be the god that they rationalized away? Is this metaphor too far off from the truth? I mean, think about it. And then examine your reaction to it and ask yourself why you feel about it the way that you do, regardless of what your reaction is. So that's the first point that I want to make. And here is the second. Look outward. We are made up of trillions of harmoniously cooperating single self-contained living things. Look at what that cooperation and diversification and harmony has done to create so much beauty and diversity and life in this world. What would it take for humans to get to that level of cooperation and diversification and harmony? Not only with other humans, but with all of the trillions of other living things. What would the single, self-contained living thing look like if we did for that what our cells do for us? Would you call that God, Source, the universe, everything? What do you think about that as a metaphor? And then once again, why do you think it? But here's the thing. It's not just a metaphor. This is happening. This is life. And you are a part of it, whether you recognize it or not as is everything else around you, animals, trees, fungi, bacteria, even rocks and metal and cloth and plastics and other man-made substances that we don't typically think of as being alive. It's all still made from the same basic stuff as you and me. It's all connected to the same quantum fields as you and me. We are a part of everything that ever is, ever was, or ever will be, right here Right now, living a life as you. you, Isn't it amazing?
1: Thank you for listening to Infants on Thrones. Infants on Thrones.